Welcome to Curated Conversation 360 Podcast and another episode in our second season of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. Like our first series, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. Note the views and opinions expressed here are those of the participants as individuals and not intended to reflect the policy or position of their companies or other affiliations. This next episode took place in Hong Kong in the offices of Baker and McKinsey. It was early morning, a lovely day, and our conversation covered a lot of territory. You know, I know working uh, with my colleagues in Singapore, um, Malaysia, I see women in senior positions, you know, positions of power and influence, and and they're, they're being valued and they're allowed to, to, to prosper. That's Minnie Vanderpaul, Global Chair of the Compliance and Investigations Group of Baker & McKinsey, and a partner with over 24 years' experience who's recognized as one of the world's leading anti-bribery and corruption lawyers. She's talking of what she sees as a trend throughout Asia that could work to its advantage vis-a-vis the West. She talks, too, of the respect paid in China for the ill and aging with an anecdote about her mother-in-law visiting Hong Kong from Australia. She's 88 years old. What she was blown away by was the respect that she got, um, that she feels is completely lacking in Australia. As for her area of expertise in corruption, she says the Chinese authorities are really serious about it and a big driver is economics. What people don't understand is the price of corruption. People think of it as, sure, monies are going into the wrong hands and you know people are getting unfair advantages, but actually the level of money that disappears from a business and it's off the books, so nobody ever does a you know, analysis as to how that affects the bottom line or the margins. We talk about these topics and why she's bullish about India's prospects, why so many Hong Kongers actually commute to mainland China daily, how good China is at just getting things done, and the contribution that NGOs are making in China. So have a listen. Thank you, Minnie, for taking part in this series, Asia in the West. Thank you, Susan. So my first question of you is, when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean? What, what, what does it bring up to you? Sure. Uh, I actually always find that a very interesting concept because it almost presupposes that Asia is this homogenous <laughs> one uh, continent of, uh, of, um, of uh, people. In the West as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And Crazy. It, it doesn't work that way. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm of Indian heritage. I was born in India but raised in Australia and now living in Hong Kong. I'm Asian. but. You know, the person next to me could be Asian in a completely different mm-hmm. way. Um, so therefore, you know, I think one of the things when we talk about having conversation is taking the time to get to know the people that you are wanting to have that conversation with. Um, and part of that is being interested, mm. genuinely interested, putting aside some of those assumptions and 
um, stories and media information or sitcoms or movies or whatever it is and actually just get to know the people that you need to to understand to communicate with to do business with uh, to learn from um, etc so so Asia is really quite complex um, you know being living in Hong Kong and uh, seeing the influence of China in Hong Kong from a political and social perspective has been mind-opening for me because when I was living in Australia I had no idea no idea yeah. about all those intricacies um, my husband works for a tour company um, he uh, he shows um, and introduces uh, tourists that come into Hong Kong and some of the tourists coming from the US ask questions like uh, so what's the main difference between China and the US they don't have any concept of what is communism they don't you know he tries to um, break it down by saying well in China you don't have Google <laughs> you know, he, he explains it in a way that they need to understand, and I think this is part of the problem. I mean, I'm glad that they are travelling, those people, because by travelling and by asking questions, um, as silly as they may seem, they're at least learning. And that's really what we need to do in order to have a true discussion. So it's, it's interesting that, in fact, as you say, at least these people are getting themselves over here they leave behind a, a very large percentage of the Western population that in many cases doesn't have a passport. Yeah. So one of my questions was going to be of you, how well does the West understand this culture, however large and varied it can be? And I think your sense is not too well. No, and that means that there's a lot more suspicion. So when we look at the political climate between the US and uh, China, uh, I think a lot of that is built on on suspicion and lack of understanding. Of course, there's always going to be economic factors, uh, but the fact that uh, Donald Trump is now looking to create relationships with Russia, where the Cold War was something that suggested that that would never happen, mm -hmm. means that of course relationships are always possible from an economic standpoint. But I think the problem with the Western lack of understanding of Asia is that it, it results in a lot of um, uh, suspicion, um, uncertainty, feeling of uh, you know, fear. Um, the China aspect obviously doesn't play into the, the Muslim um, issue. However, there is still this lack of understanding and somehow they're so different from us that we can not uh, we cannot work together. So what about the other way around? Yeah. How well does does Asia, yeah. that big monolithic, thing, how well do Asians understand the West? I think they're putting a lot more effort mm -hmm. into doing so. So they're sending their students out to the world, whether it's to Europe or to Australia or to uh, the US, Canada, and they're telling them you must learn because there's a lot of good things that you can learn and bring back. Um, so for example, Prime Minister Modi in, in relation to India um, 
has made it very easy for Indians that have left India and have gone to other countries and made their lives there to come back, to invest, to work, to contribute, to bring back their learning and actually uh, use it for the benefit of India in the future. And I suspect that that has played a part in India's economic boom. Uh, it, is, it is doing a lot better. Um, and there is, you know, I, I went to the World Econ Economic Forum in Delhi last year. All right. Um, and I had gone to the 2014 one, December, but I'd missed 2015. And then I went to last year. And the difference was amazing. So really? In 2014, there were a lot of government ministers uh, attending panels. Many of them didn't speak English. They were sort of, um, I would call, sort of unsophisticated. And their understanding of what, they, what their part was to the success of India was, was difficult to understand. The change between 2014 to 2016 was amazing. We suddenly had um, ministers and government uh, representatives who were uh, articulate, who had strategic vision. Mm. Um, you know, they were talking about innovation in a way that I hadn't heard from, from you know, particularly the government sector, but talking with the private sector and, and you know, just working out ways that they could actually work together on the podium, you know, on panel sessions. It was extremely impressive. And I, I see a lot of that uh, coming from education, uh, the fact that English is, um, is really the national language. I mean, Prime Minister Modi would like Hindi to be, but really it's English because it unifies the whole of the mm -hmm. country. Uh, the fact that so many of these individuals have gone out into the world, learnt and come back, uh, and they're still learning. They're wanting to learn. They're not suggesting that India has the, all the answers. And that's where Western countries, I think, we get so... We have the superiority that we know everything and there's nothing for us to learn from the emerging markets or developing countries. We've got to stop that kind of concept because, frankly, these developing countries, so-called, are leading the way. They're already developed, yeah, actually. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, maybe moving beyond where many people had any, even an inkling of that. So one of the things I was going to ask is how has this, the conversations that we're talking about, have they have changed over the last several years? And that's a great example, mm -hmm. certainly from India. How about China? Has the, do you see the same sort of thing happening with the same impact? So, yeah, what, how does that compare to what's happening? Yeah, so China, it's, it is slightly different because I think China's still grappling with... Um, they want to learn and they want to benefit, but the difference really is how much freedom they're willing to allow their people to have in order to be the best that they can be. Because freedom and political control may not sit so comfortably. And I think that's, China's really grappling with that because the internet is at the heart of uh, a lot of innovation. Um, but by cutting their citizens from 
being able to access all that it has to offer may be curtailing some of the opportunities. Um, that's a losing game anyway, though, isn't it? I mean, exactly. how much can you control well, that that's right. over time? That's exactly right. And so I think they've, the, the difficulty for China will be willingness to open up and trust um, their citizens who have a true love of the country. And I, I actually think they do. I mean, we do a lot of work in China and we've got offices in Shanghai and Beijing and a lot of our team members are Chinese. They have a deep love of the country, and they can see that the opportunities are great for them. Now, has that shifted at all with the slight, with the recent downturn? No, because um, there's a couple of things that uh, the, the downturn. I think the downturn demonstrates that um, there's always room for improvement, mm -hmm. and there's no perfection in the strategy that was set, and they need to to relook at the way that they're going to approach. Um, uh, and they need to be a little bit more transparent in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Because I think part of the problem was all we saw were the good results. Um, it was very difficult to understand what the true strategy was behind those results and how much of those results perhaps were based on, let's put it, certain level of optimism rather than reality. And we've seen that in terms of some of the businesses that have failed uh, or that have suffered deep financial losses. Um, so another reason that people will give is the battle uh, in terms of um, uh, dealing with the corruption issues in China. So that's where we, you know, in terms of what I do. That's close I, to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the West sit, will say, oh, it's all politically driven. You know that uh, China's only done this um, to get rid of bad apples. You mean their anti-corruption campaign? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Do you agree um, with that? I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't. I'm sure that just as the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the U.S., has a certain level of political um, will in there, uh, I'm sure that the China uh, anti-corruption um, measures also have a certain level of political uh, impetus, but. But I actually think that they genuinely wanted to reduce corruption um, because they could see that it was holding them back. Uh, what people don't understand is the price of corruption. People think of it as, sure, monies are going into the wrong hands and you know people are getting unfair advantages, but actually the level of money that disappears from a business and it's off the books, so nobody ever does a you know, analysis as to how that affects the bottom line or the margins and uh, what that, what actually, you know, what the impact is, if it's not assessed, um, by, by making this culturally acceptable to operate with reduced, with reduced, nobody's ever going to eradicate corruption, but with reduced uh, corruption um, in their business model, it actually is economically a very good strategy. And I think you're going to see the benefits of that going forward. Rather than getting a government contract by paying multi-millions of dollars or RMB, uh, you know, there's now a, a more even um, playing field 
and the right, hopefully, the right businesses will be winning those contracts for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. So that means there'll be greater efficiencies. Um, it means that there'll be probably cost savings. Uh, and there isn't that leakage of money uh, disappearing into somebody's hands. Well, you're pretty close to all this. Is it working? Uh, I, am, I am seeing a marked improvement in being able to say no. Uh -huh. So when I have clients who grapple with uh, government officials in China today, I can find measures for them to withstand those pressures, say no to those demands, and if they continue to be pressured, we can go up the line. We can, we can uh, take those complaints to a high level. That's, that's that, totally new, right? That's that, totally yeah. new. Um, because uh, it's so in the media. I mean, China has been very um, uh, active in making sure that everybody knows about it. And yeah. so everybody in every village now with an iPhone yeah. knows that they can record what their local officials are doing, right? And you know they have rewards. I mean, we talk about whistleblowing rewards coming out of the U.S. Nobody... So there's a lack of understanding that actually the the number of whistleblowing incentives in China is quite amazing and the protection for whistleblowers against retaliation is un, unprecedented. Really? There is nothing like that in the US or in any other country that I'm aware of. They have enacted laws, regulations, and they've got them, they've enforced them so that if somebody retaliates against a whistleblower or they retaliate against a whistleblower's family member um, or somehow they're, even if they're not terminated from employment, they, their, their situation might be um, diminished, that is all actionable. Really? So, and, and enforced? And enforced. Wow. So that, that, that really is a big change. So what about... That sounds like you were also suggesting in there, or maybe I was hoping to read into it, that it leads to more innovation, that it encourages people. Now, am I right about that? I, 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 I certainly think that, that it is open for that. Um, I haven't got any evidence to suggest that one thing is adding up to the next, only because we've had such little time. So the, um, this whole anti-corruption uh, strategy has been relatively, you know, yeah, it's no, young. It's, yeah. it's about, um, you know, five years. Uh, although, if that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So therefore, I don't, I haven't got any suggestions to, to or any evidence to say that it certainly um, has done so. But, but I think it opens itself up for that. So many, we do know though that there's all kinds of innovation coming out of China now. Absolutely. Even though Westerners aren't necessarily appreciative of that, but, or even know about it. Mm. But, it's obvious to anybody that spends any time here. So where is that coming from? It is, I remember it wasn't that long ago that sitting in conversations here in Hong Kong, people would say, well, you know, China and innovation, it's a problem because their educational system at the lower levels just does not lead to um, independent thinking. It's all by rote, so they're going to have a problem. Well, they're still teaching their kids by rote, uh, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. and. They're somehow innovating. Where is it coming from? Is it homegrown or is it coming from all those people going to the West and coming back 
and sharing that kind of thinking. It's certainly not expats, mm. I don't think, because there aren't that many that are really influencing the way they used to. What's the story? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. I think their education system is not, it, it, it has evolved. Yes, they still learn by rote, um, as do most Asian countries. Mm -hmm. Um, because they, they believe that a certain level of information needs to, to, to be put into the minds of young people. But uh, I think they're encouraging education to be broader. So they're not limiting education to be simply with the books. They are, you know, developing opportunities for them to have practical exposures. Um, like what? And I was just going to add to that. And although you said the expats may not have a great deal of influence, there's a, a number of NGOs mm. um, operating in China who I think have had some tremendous influence. So an area that I know a little bit about is um, in terms of environmental sustainability. And the reason I know it is only because my eldest son is doing environmental engineering and he went to China on a, a tour of uh, various facilities that they had developed uh, to, to provide sustainable um, opportunities in rural areas. And he was blown away really? by the work that these NGOs were doing and what it was giving to farmers and to the local people in terms of better uh, water quality, um, farming practices, uh, and a number of other initiatives um, that he had learned about at university. He's, he hasn't been, he's only in his third year, he's got one more year to go. So, you know, he's obviously at a very early stage, but was still very impressed um, at what he could see. And are those NGOs operating in the absence of, you know, we're doing this because the government hasn't taken steps, or is this all happening at once? Is the Chinese government as well? The Chinese government is very much behind a lot of these projects and are encouraging and putting money. So that's part of it. So when you talk about, you know, where's the innovation coming, it's the resourcing. So where a lot of our NGOs in other, um, particularly coming out of the West, are often starved for funding or, or it's sort of, you know, really trying to eke out um, the ability to do some of those projects. China has the ability to fund these things, and they are funding, and I think that that makes a big difference to innovation. Mm. So where does Hong Kong come into all this? Um, I'm interested, especially because people have talked to me over the last year or two, I get, it's almost as if it's blind people describing an elephant, depending on what they think of the future mm. of Hong Kong. Depends on where they stand. So where do you come out on all that? What's the future for Hong Kong, especially given the last several years of stress and trouble over its role with, within Greater China? I think, again, um, we're going to have to wait and see a little bit because I'm very new to Hong Kong, so it's my, now... I've How long have you been here? Two and a half years. Okay. So I feel like I'm very much a novice in terms of, of understanding Hong Kong. Uh, what I love about Hong Kong is in, it really is one of the very few places that I've seen where East and West are in this melting pot. Singapore has almost stripped away all its Eastern 
aspects and is now this bright and shiny thing. Whereas Hong Kong still has all of its dark little corners and interesting laneways and, and its people. And there is still a, uh, a love of the Hong Kong culture being allowed to shine. But you've got to remember Hong Kong, of course, has a culture made up of you know the Punjabis who came as as um, policemen um, for the British. You've got uh, expats. You've got new expats, old expats. You've got the China Chinese uh, nationals. You've got uh, it, it's just such a mixture of of um, cultures and and um, people originating from very many different countries. The influence of China is. Everyone's just trying to work out well, how's, how's this going to play out. A lot of the protests that we've seen for democracy has been quite interesting, but it's a mixture of different tensions. There is certainly the element of wanting Hong Kong to be democratic and therefore be different um, to China. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. simply because it is part of China and unless it happens in China it's not going to happen in Hong Kong. But the second aspect though is Hong Kong's always been a business. I've always seen Hong Kong as more of a bank or a corporation. It's been run in that way and it's been allowed to prosper and create wealth and opportunities for its people. And so the young people in Hong Kong today say, well, hang on a minute, where, where, where is that for me? Because that opportunity is not as readily available. Property prices are huge. huge um, you know, for a young person uh, without a major family support, they can't afford to buy, you know, an apartment. Even rent um, one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so they're saying, hang on, I've been sold a lemon because you told me if I went to school, studied really hard, went to university, got a great degree, um, got a good job, that these opportunities would be for me and they're not. So I think somehow we've got to find uh, a way for Hong Kong to redress that balance because otherwise you're going to have those millennials leaving frankly. And in fact, what we've seen is there has been a, a, a much bigger um, exodus. exodus and where, where do they go? Well, people say they, they go back to, because if you remember at the time of um, the handover, a lot of people were given visas or permanent residency for Canada, the UK. Um, That's true. And so a lot of the families are either, some parts of the family are still there. Some people came back, some people stayed. So they're going back to um, those countries where, uh, who, who gave them um, refuge. So yeah, there are a lot going to Australia, I know that for a fact, and Canada, the UK. Uh, and I suspect the US. So how about, how about China itself, mainland China? There are some sources that say that some of China's wealthiest and brightest are actually exiting mainland China. Do you see that? Um, I'm not sure I see it in where I'm sitting because uh, a lot of companies we act for are attracting some amazingly talented people to come and work for them. In mainland China? In mainland China. Mm -hmm. Now, the prob there are some problems in, in terms of that. 
Some people just don't want to live in China. And that's more about the pollution rather mm -hmm. than and you know the impact on your health and your children. Um, so families, uh, you know, that's a big decision if you if you choose to move to Beijing, mm -hmm. because unfortunately that that uh, is uh, a, con a big concern. So a lot of people are actually living in Hong Kong and working in mainland China. If you look at the air routes um, between Hong Kong and Shanghai, Beijing, and other parts, or the train. The commuting that's going on is quite. It's been good for Cathay. Very good for yeah. Cathay, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's so China has to deal with that. That's that's the biggest elephant in the room. They're dealing with corruption, and I think, um, but the environmental issues are significant because it can be. It could be a game changer. So, do you are you ultimately bullish on China? I'm. Unless, I, I wouldn't suggest bullish. I'm suggesting that China has not yet realized its potential. And I think the potential is significant. Um, and when you say that, yeah, potential I, in what? In a number of aspects. Economically, I think they, they may have had a, um, a couple of backward steps. But I think they are intelligent enough to learn from that, and we're already seeing some positive signs. Mm -hmm. I think if they trust their citizens in order to uh, allow them to innovate, allow them to learn, allow them to to develop a bit more freely, I think the potential is huge because you know this is a a group of people who, if they already have significant um, ability to do to work together as a team you know China. India can really learn I was just going to ask you what's the contrast <laughs> yeah, here the contrast is India is just billions of people that are individuals uh, and if something <laughs> there's that democracy if, thing if something works it's almost happenstance rather than good planning but um, but that is also changing I think we're we're seeing a little bit of that, but we'll come back to that. Yeah. So China, China already has that ability to gather people together. Um, sure, it could be because of communism, and and it has a way of doing that. But that's not a bad thing. It mm -hmm. can it can mean things get done. Mm -hmm. It can mean that rather than talk about it, um, they take action. They actually take action, and and if they make a mistake, they need to figure out. Okay, how do we adjust? How do we go back? Rather than in the old days, if there was a mistake, then there was a cover-up, or it was there'd be lack of transparency, and somebody would be punished, etc. But I think, you know, if they are prepared to sort of embrace a more open culture, uh, but still retain that ability to get people to um, to harness the, the 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 will, the action of the people, I think they. There is a great deal more potential. So the challenges that could um, the, be the hiccup, you mentioned the environmental one, that they need to solve that. Secondly, it sounds like that whole, the relationship between the government and its people, how there's a transaction there that 
the people allow the government to sort of speak for them so long as they continue to feel that they'll be richer and better off than they were yesterday. Yes. Um, is there any other big potential challenge that China faces in this thing going ahead? Um, what about their health care system and the aging population? How critical yeah. is that? Yeah, no, but that, that, I actually share that with a number of countries. That's true. It's not uniquely China um, issue. That's something that we are all grappling with. That's true, isn't um, it? And often very badly. Um, so, yes, I, I, there's a number of other elements of their social and uh, infrastructure that, that will need to, to continue to evolve. But, you know, that's one thing that I see... Um, my mother-in-law came to Hong Kong for a visit. She's 88 years old. What she was blown away by was the respect that she got, mm. um, that she feels is completely lacking in Australia. She, she does, she's not even talking about people standing up to give her a seat on a, on a bus or anything like that. She's actually talking about people, you know, when she's walking, she had a hip replacement, so her walking was not so great, but she had to walk because we were, um, you know, uh, wanting her to, to recuperate. She's back playing tennis, by the way. Great. Anyway, but when she was here in Hong Kong, people were respectful and moved to one side to allow her to mm. pass. But they were friendly in doing it. There were people that would smile, you know. Um, uh, she felt she was listened to. Um, yes. People would make eye contact. And in Australia, you know, her experience has been so negative. She, she's been to hospitals where the medical people will talk and it would be like she's just a piece of meat on, on the bed because they don't talk to her, they don't ask her, they make assumptions right there in front of her. And she, she finds it extraordinarily frustrating. You know, she feels that the bureaucracy, they're, they're trying to get rid of her license so that you know they want to stop her from driving they want to you know all those sort of things interesting without the pluses whereas in hong kong and in china the respect is, for there is a elders great, yeah mm -hmm. and if again i think that that's something that china should make sure that it doesn't lose because while it struggles with an aging population it's going to make it a lot easier if people um you know, if, the if they struggle together and they seek the input of elderly people as to what they want. So let's look at India now. How bullish are you about India's future? That messy democracy that yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit more bullish um, because I've seen some really dramatic changes that I never thought I would see. So really? The introduction of the goods and services tax. Um, is, in my view, something that is a very good change. What, ha what has happened as a result of that? Well, no, we haven't seen the result of that, but the fact That's that true. we're going to have, have it, it is a major change because uh, so that, together with the demonetizing policy that Modi has introduced, is his way of trying to grapple with corruption. Uh, he can't do it in the same way as, um, as China because you can't just snap your fingers and, and everything goes the way that you want it to go in India, of course. However, he's taken steps that are pretty dramatic and, again, unprecedented and have caused a huge amount of disruption. 
disruption right down to the basic level of, of you know, um, uh, rickshaw drivers having to open up a bank account. But I've been reading all these interviews um, uh, and vox pops that have come out of India because I'm fascinated by this, mm -hmm. where the same rickshaw driver says, yes, I know, it's been a pain, there's been not been you know, small change. Um, I've got family members there uh, and you've been having to queue up to open these bank accounts, etc. But the same Richard driver says, but I think he's done the right thing. Really? Yes. So he's got, he's got uh, yes. backing from the population. And apparently, if you read, if, if you believe what's in the media, he will be re-elected despite the amazing disruption. Know, disruption and the, 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 the it, it, it has, I mean, you can imagine, <laughs> there's not enough people manning banks to be able to open these bank accounts. They can't print the new notes fast enough to get it out into circulation. Um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 quite crazy, and it does in fact, you know, it impacts the small businesses. Um, uh, but but at the same time, if he hadn't done that, the prospect of India succeeding and continuing to to grow would have been We're slow. much slower, much much slower. So what's the, what are the challenges for India that could get in the way of this future growth? Um, so he's taken some steps. He's taken um, you know, other steps in terms of putting a lot of permits and licenses online so that there's less ability to have to pay bribes to get mm -hmm. things done. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the, some of those things are really good, but he hasn't done enough in terms of anti-corruption. He has to have a law that works. At the moment, uh, there is a law, but it's not being enforced. Um, there's been talk and there's a draft of something that's very akin to the UK Bribery Act. Ah. Um, but it hasn't yet been passed and put into... Um, uh, and, it, and it's not about just having a law. He needs to also put the resources in to have a proper regulator who will enforce, enforce mm -hmm. there will be fines, there will be jail time, because unfortunately people need to understand what the consequences are in order for them to change the way they behave. It's a real behavioural yeah. change. Yeah. yeah. And at the yeah. moment we've got clients who are still struggling about, well, how, to, how? I, and I, I've got a better story today than I did five years ago with them, and there are a number of things we can do. But I, it's not nearly the story that I would like to be able to, mm -hmm. um, to give. So is there anything we haven't talked about that, that is on your mind or that you think should be included when we talk about this Asia and the West? You know, opportunity. Um, what I've also seen in Hong Kong is uh, not, not in every country in Asia, but in some countries I'm seeing the women, woman's voice being heard in a way that I was um, I was more frustrated about in Australia, mm. and um, and I thought that was interesting. Um, so for many countries in in Asia, there is more support for women to be able to go back into the workplace um, because. There are helpers available. There's 
you know, that's a, that's a whole issue in, yeah. in itself, Susan. But, it is but there are, but there's also family support. Mm-hmm. Um, because a woman who has gone and had a university education who then says, now I'm going to stop working and look after the children, the community looks askance at that. And a lot of, unfortunately, the same social pressures, uh, well, it's entirely the opposite in Australia where people look askance at a woman who's decided to go back to work and leave their children, her children, um, in the care of a nanny or a childcare centre. So Asia has this ability to perhaps more quickly tap into the skills and the contribution of women that I suspect could be, they could be more successful at that than than. Um, than the Western West. Countries, yeah. So what you're saying is that, in fact, uh, unlike Australia, people look askance when a woman gives up this profession. Yeah. And really, now is that true in Japan as well? No, that's, that's the one you. exception. Exactly, yeah. Asia is not a lot. Yeah, because no, I, I that's pr- right. There I are know many about countries you. where um, where th- that's going to be a much bigger change that's going to be required. But we're talking about a pretty big part of the world, if that's and an I'm issue. And I'm talking about China, I'm talking yeah, about India, a lot I'm of talking manpower. about Hong Kong, and these are the countries I know best. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I know working uh, with my colleagues in Singapore, um, Malaysia, I see women in senior positions, you know, positions of power and influence, and and they're they're being valued and they're allowed to 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 prosper. And that's capital that you know that could make that could be a game changer just in itself and it's an area that's very passionate to me well me as well i mean that once again it could be that asia takes the lead yeah. on something that's been argued about and discussed and yeah. fought over you know but a lot of people feel hasn't made that much progress in the west so i have one last question of you and that is something that's just come up recently the fact that the south china morning post has uh, appointed a new CEO since Jack Ma and his company bought um, Alibaba bought the South China China Morning Post. Um, what do you think about that as an institution? And does it sound like this idea of bringing in a technology sound really hopeful in terms of that being a voice, a, a, a source of news that people in the rest of the world will appreciate? Um. Yeah, I have to say that it was, I I certainly subscribed to the South China Post when I first moved here two and a half years ago. And you said that in the past tense, so that's... Yeah, yeah, and then I gave it up because unfortunately uh, the way that the paper, it it had very little to offer me and uh, and I wasn't quite convinced that it was providing, um, you know, a complete picture or at least as complete as as I would like it. Or one not influenced by mainland China. Correct, Mm -hmm. correct. So... So if this change is going to bring a change, a real change, to provide us with greater opportunity to be aware of what is occurring in a more neutral way, I'd be really interested because I think this is, you know, that's another difference with Asia. In many countries here in Asia, the newspaper is still valued people will buy the newspaper and read it, you know. Um, if they feel it's a true source. Correct, of, yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, and you only have to look in India. I think there are more newspapers uh, published in India than 
you could ever find in in almost any other country. Really? Yes. And, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Okay. And um, the the and people still buy the newspaper every morning. And in fact, they'll buy several. Um, and you've got a you've got broad offerings. Uh, uh, and and I think that 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 is it, it's interesting because they there is a very um, open, unbiased media. Um, who uh, are willing to report anything and everything? Now, that could be that could be good and bad, but um, but you're certainly not getting a politically sensitised version. Um, so if if the South China Post, you know, that could be a way of of this trust that I was talking yeah. about. If if um, Jack Ma is allowed to run a paper, if his editor is allowed to to speak freely. That could be a really could be huge, amazing way of making yeah. that change. And also because it's here in Hong Kong, it gives another power base to Hong Kong yeah. that uh, would be certainly, I think, um, strengthened if it becomes the the global vehicle that I think it could be. Because people in the West, as we said very early, they weren't um, they're not as informed as they should be. So this is a good place to stop, perhaps. <laughs> the perfect timing. Um, I, this has been just fascinating to me, Minnie. Thank you so much for participating in this Asia and the West podcast series. And I hope we'll continue this conversation at some Thank point. Thank you, Susan. I, I appreciate the opportunity and to catch up with you. This is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings. And the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.